So as I mentioned, I have been uh, teaching on uh, speech practice and what we sometimes call wise speech or mindful communication uh, several times in the last uh, six or seven weeks, including a, a retreat in New Mexico. And I was reflecting, being personally um, inspired um, by uh, what was going on in the speech retreat, to uh, was inspired to share this with you, thinking that I hadn't offered speech practice for quite some time. I looked it up, and it was quite a number of years uh, since we last explored this. And so, I wanted, what I want to do today is to outline the importance of speech practice and talk about two foundational capacities for speech practice. One of them is working with what we get from the tradition especially, um, four core guidelines for our speech. And then the second foundation is developing the capacity to be present in the midst of speaking, to bring our mindfulness, our sense of awareness and presence while we're speaking. So. I'll outline the importance of speech practice and those two foundations. Then we'll then we'll practice some together. We'll work. We'll have some practice, and then we'll be able to talk about it. So my hope is that we are interested and inspired, and want to take the next week to devote to speech practice. This doesn't mean necessarily doing more talking, <laughs> but it does mean bringing your sense of practice and awareness, clear intention and so forth to your speaking. And then uh, having worked with the foundations this week, my hope is that next week we can focus on how we bring the foundational capacities of skillful speech into challenging speech situations where there is conflict, difference of views, irritation, antagonism, and possibly worse. Okay. And so that's, that's my intention. So it's, um, it's an amazing area because I think uh, you know, from, from one perspective, many of us may at times complain about not enough time for spiritual practice or we find it hard to do the 20 or 30 minutes of silent meditation every day. Anyone find that sometimes challenging? Quite a number of us. And so when we can make our speech practice alive, guess what? Many of us have five or 10 hours of dedicated spiritual practice a day, right? If we can somehow bring that intention, which is not easy. It's not easy to remember. Remember, we all often say about our practice that mindfulness or even compassion, kindness, isn't that hard. Remembering to be mindful, remembering to come with a kind heart, that can be hard for many of us. That's quite hard. When we actually remember, it's actually not that hard. Or as uh, Sylvia said, with the name of one of her books, Sylvia Borstein, it's easier than you think. 
she wrote a book with that title. So, this is from the Zen teacher, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Zen teacher. This is his articulation of the guideline for skillful speech. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I vow to cultivate loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I vow to learn to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. And he goes on, I will, I will make all efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. And in fact, in his community, there are guidelines for both skillful speech and an agreement to resolve conflicts within the community. People make an agreement to come back to work with difficulties or conflicts within a week within the community, looking for the right time to bring something up. And as we'll see, uh, uh, skill in knowing what the right time is for a difficult discussion is quite crucial. It's one of the, one of the uh, guidelines that we actually get from the Buddha. So we know that uh, in a moment, unskillful speech can trigger us and lead to conflict, difficulty, moments that we ruminate about for days or weeks, even though the speech happened and it took 10 seconds or 20 seconds. There's a New Yorker cartoon in which a woman is standing talking to a police officer and there's a couch right behind her. Now she's sitting on the couch Right behind the couch is a someone who looks like a detective taking notes. And also behind the couch is what appears to be a body with the feet sticking up and legs on the ground. And the woman says, he misspoke, I misheard, shots rang out. No, using the metaphor of actual physical violence, but we know that scenario, right? And we know how quickly things can happen. We also know how kind and caring speech can make such a difference when I'm in distress, when one's in distress, when there are difficulties, and there can be uh, the use of language or even simply careful listening that is so crucial. A very, very powerful area. And again, uh, one that actually in the, um, in the teachings of the Buddha, many of you know the guidelines of the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, skillful speech was one of the eight areas. We may think of uh, monks and nuns as in you know, days of yore, uh, meditating all the time and not talking so much. But they were, they were talking a fair amount. And if you read the text, there are a lot of accounts of the Buddha intervening where there was conflict, where there was unskillful speech. And there's a lot of emphasis and enough to make it one of the eight core areas of training. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, again, it's one that we hear at Spirit Rock, I think we tend to emphasize more the meditative training. 
and we don't emphasize as much some of what we might call the ethical dimensions of training. That's where speech fits. It fits in that uh, category. But it's very central, and I would say it's a central and relatively undeveloped part of training for our times. That obviously to bring practice to all the parts of our lives and not just for 20 or 30 minutes a day, although that's a very good start, we want to bring it to speech practice. And we want to bring it into our speech with friends and with family members as well as communities and ultimately into the national level. And I'm conscious that we're, we're exploring this topic a few weeks before the elections. That um, skillful speech is not always an evidence in the nation's capital. I'll expand on that a little bit later. But it's, it's been that way for quite some time. You know, I, I actually once worked in the U.S. Congress, as I've sometimes mentioned, when I was in college. And it was a hard experience, actually, for me as an idealistic uh, young person. So speech practice fits within the Noble Eightfold Path. In other words, speech practice is part of our training to awaken, to work through greed, hatred, and delusion, and to develop the qualities of clear seeing, kindness, compassion, and wisdom. That speech practice is an integral part of that. Again, I think somewhat underdeveloped in our culture, but I would say crucial maybe even, in some ways, more significant some, than some of the other trainings. And the, the approach that I'll be offering is to connect it intimately to mindfulness, to developing kindness, loving kindness, compassion. That speech practice is very integrally connected with that. And in fact, one, one of the qualities of the uh, traditional model of the Noble Eightfold Path that's not always known, is that all of the eight factors are closely related. All of the areas of training need to be related. This is something that gets lost uh, to a large extent with the way that mindfulness has been brought into the contemporary world in a secular way. It's been somewhat taken out of context and not necessarily connected with ethics and with wisdom. And so I think there are pros and cons of that, but the, some of the negatives are that it becomes simply a way of being present, and, you know, sometimes in business, being present so you can be more efficient, and it loses, it potentially loses the understanding of mindfulness traditionally, which is that mindfulness needs to be connected with wisdom and with ethics, with all the other areas of training. And that, that potentially can be a problem. You know, in the first half of the 20th century, meditation was taught in Japan to the um, Japanese army, sometimes. And I've heard apologies from the Zen, from Zen teachers saying that we lost our bearings. I've seen quotations from talks by Zen masters to the troops, you know, who would obviously at times commit atrocities guidance to the troops saying, when you march, just march. 
when you shoot, just shoot. The use of meditative language without the ethical bearings. So that's the danger. It has happened. It has happened. And we have to be, be alert for that. And so uh, speech practice is part of this, of this training. Part of, part of the Eightfold Path. And so, um, the two foundational areas, again, are first following ethical guidelines for skillful, for wise speech, for what in the tradition is usually translated as right speech, which I think could be understood to mean uh, developed, mature speech at a high level. Right is not always the best translation. Anyway, I won't, I won't get so much into that. When we, when we hear of right speech, it doesn't mean so much uh, speaking in the, totally the right way. It means right is more, could be translated as developed or mature. So the word is actually sama, which is related etymologically to English words like summary and has to do with a sense of completion and uh, uh, bringing everything together. So there are four guidelines for skillful speech that are expressed by the historical Buddha. And these are very valuable as one of the foundations of our speech. And this really has to do with what my colleague Oren Sofer speaks about as developing a very clear and strong intention with our speech. You know, that a key part of our speech practice is being in a speech situation and remembering the intention. And so the four guidelines are, are on the handout and there, one way to talk about them is that we are uh, really supported to be truthful in our speech, to be helpful in our speech, to come out of a kind heart in our speech, and to um, have appropriateness of speech. This is especially focused on having the right timing with our speech. So I want to talk about each of those four, talk a little bit also about being present, present during our speech practice, bringing mindfulness to our speech, and then we'll do some practices, then we'll talk about it. Okay, that's, that's where I want to go. So we'll, my, and my whole intention is to have you both um, energized to take on speech during the next week and have some practical uh, ways to do that. That's my, that's my hope, okay? So, this is, uh, this is from the Buddha. So it could be seen as an expression of those four qualities. Abandoning false speech, one abstains from false speech. One speaks truth, adheres to truth, is trustworthy and reliable as one who has no deceiver of the world. Abandoning malicious speech, one abstains from a malicious speech. One does not repeat elsewhere what one has heard here in order to divide these peop those people from these, and so forth. Um, one is a promoter of friendships, enjoys concord, rejoices in concord. Abandoning harsh speech, one abstains from harsh speech. One speaks words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable as go to the heart. Abandoning gossip, one abstains from gossip. One speaks at the right time. One speaks what is fact, speaks what is good, and so forth. 
So that's a very traditional expression from 2,500, 2,600 years ago of those four. So these four guidelines are both uh, guidelines for our behavior. And so we can actually have them uh, as a sort of signposts. And they're also pointers for our mindfulness. In other words, they're both guidelines we can use. So for example, I once worked with a group for six months on skillful speech. I had by my telephone these four guidelines. Truthful, helpful, you know, good kind heart, good timing, appropriateness. And every time I would um, get a telephone call, I'd hear the ring. I would say to myself before I answered the phone, truthful, helpful, good heart, good timing, hello. That <laughs> would give me some guidance. Another time, uh, a woman who, was, who I was working with uh, was having difficult discussions with her teenage daughter. She put the four guidelines on her hand and looked at them as she was talking with her daughter, <laughs> right? And so there, uh, there are ways that we can work. I've also sometimes, when I've been in long meetings, I write the guidelines on a sheet of paper right in front of me so I can look at them. I also was able, uh, once I worked uh, for a number of years at a graduate school in San Francisco, and um, members of the faculty were having communication challenges at times, and I was part of a committee to help uh, see if we could have better communication, and of course I had been teaching on this stuff, so I knew the, these four guidelines, and the whole faculty agreed to abide by these four guidelines without overly stressing they were from the Buddha and so forth, but they liked them, right? And so they asked me at the beginning of our all-day meetings to get up in front and on a, you know, with a marker board, write the four guidelines and talk five minutes about them, and they'd be staring at everyone for the whole day. And so they, these would be like behavioral guidelines, and the people who were somewhat uniformly known as the uh, least skillful speakers would sometimes preface their comments by saying, I'm not sure if this is really going to follow the guidelines, but, <laughs> but I think it did constrain them somewhat, right? and so it was, it was working. So we can use these both as um, what I'm calling behavioral guidelines, that, that they just remind us. And we can also use them as tools or mindfulness. In other words, we work with the guidelines, and when we're not truthful, we can go inside. What's going on? You know, what's going on in my being? I'm not being truthful. I'm not being fully truthful, or I'm exaggerating, or whatever. What's going on? Or, you know, I find myself, my heart shut down here. What's going on? And we can actually use the guidelines to look within. Those are the two main ways that we use it. So I'll say a little bit about the guidelines talk some about being present, and again, then we'll, then we'll practice together. So, the guideline of truthfulness, of course, applies to refraining from outright lies and from outright falsehoods. Uh, but it also can be extended, probably many of us, or most of us, don't necessarily tell falsehoods very much, but we may get into the so-called gray area. We may get into exaggerations, omissions, uh, saying things for the purposes of self-image, half-truths, and so forth. 
That's especially what we want to look at. When do I not fully tell the truth? And of course, why is truth important? Why is telling the truth important? For our relationships, it's crucial for trust. We can't have much trust either in relationships or in a community without truthfulness, right? And that's why in some ways the, uh, you know, there, there's at the current time, there's a kind of an attack on being truthful that we see particularly with the, um, you know, coming from the nation's capital, you know, which is quite, um, I think quite significant. I just want to say that. And again, having worked in Congress, I saw members of, as it were, both parties not always being truthful. But I think some of what's happening now is actually uh, quite dangerous because there's a kind of a social undermining of the value of truth. You know, and many of you know that some of the newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post, they chronicle the number of lies per day by the president, which I think is at 6.5, you know, the number of overt lies. And, uh, I just want to say that this is dangerous to trust in a community, trust in a nation, and uh, you know, there's a, uh, an author named Jason Stanley who's from Yale University who just came out with a book called How Fascism Works. And he says one of the hallmarks of fascism, you know, which he defines pretty broadly, uh, is, uh, you know, is an attack on truth. You find that when you look to authoritarian governments both historically and in the contemporary world. There's an attack on truth. There's an attack on science. There's an attack on the ability to know the truth. So I just want to notice that because all of these uh, speech guidelines have social dimensions to them. And so, you know, some of us may, if we, you know, one of the ways that we interpret following the guidelines is to have that guide our participation in the larger world. You know, that if we, if we make a strong commitment to non-harming, which we do with our, with our ethics, we may be motivated to help create less harm in the world or act in ways that mitigate harming, you know, as in the criminal justice system. So I think that's, that's related. Being helpful is very crucial as well. This is, what's my motivation for this interaction? Do I want to connect, be helpful? Where am I coming from? And so the guidelines can be really far-reaching. And the um, importance of the guidelines is that all of them have to go together. Very crucial aspect of the guidelines. That many of us sometimes can be truthful without being helpful. Anyone ever done that? or without coming from a good heart, right? We sometimes call this uh, dumping, or using truth as a weapon, right? And that's a really key aspect of these guidelines. All four have to be together. You know, we can be truthful, helpful, and even come out of a beautiful heart, and if our timing is really off, it's a mess. So that's, that's a key, key factor to remember here. So not just the truthfulness, but also also being helpful. Uh, and this is particularly looking, you know, in the traditional teachings, it's looking at when, I'm, when am I not helpful, when am I actually being negative or harmful with my speech? And we want to look out for that. You know, the word in the, uh, in the translation is I gave in, in the reading from the Buddha is malicious. When do I, when, 
do I have negative or malicious speech? The third guideline is coming out of a kind heart as much as possible. And this uh, can coexist with saying difficult things. So coming out of a kind heart as a guideline doesn't mean being overly nice. Really, really crucial. That we want to uh, see, if, see if the kind heart is there. And this is a hard one. I, I, I noticed like when I was working with the guidelines over a number of months, particularly when I thought myself busy, I was pretty truthful and pretty helpful, but sometimes I was trying to be efficient. Okay, let's have this conversation occur in three minutes and finish, right? And I wasn't always kind in those moments. Anyone relate to that? Okay, right, that, and so this sometimes means taking a little longer, but can I bring in that kind heart as well? And that was interesting. When you, if you work with this in the next week, you'll find that you're stronger on some of the guidelines than, than the others. That's really good to know. Where am I stronger? How do the constraints of my life make me stronger in one and not as strong on another? You know, I could see that for myself in terms of a lot to do, being efficient, let's just, you know, and the warmth or kindness wasn't always there. Self-confession. So, so we want to work with that. And again, we can say something difficult or challenging, set boundaries, say no. We can still come out of a kind heart, although that's harder. It's harder, of course, to keep the kind heart there when we're saying something difficult or we're in a difficult conversation. And the last one is about uh, appropriateness and especially a focus on timing. And this is, again, both obvious and crucial and not always seen. Both obvious and not always obvious, right? That uh, we want to ask ourselves, is this the right time to have this conversation? Is it the right, particularly a difficult one? And ask that, asking that question is really important. It means sometimes we, have, we feel this pressure. You know, someone, especially with a difficult conversation, we may feel pressure to gotta deal with that right now but ask, is it the right time? In particular, where's my mind at? If my mind and heart and body are agitated, activated, triggered, usually not the right time. You know, in the Thich Nhat Hanh community, the guideline that I mentioned was, when you have a conflict, agree to come back and speak with the person, but make sure that you're not in a reactive and triggered place. You know, we've looked, we've looked at that in the last few weeks, last times I've come, looked at how to work with reactivity. Some of it is when one's reactive and triggered, refraining from speaking or taking a time out or having a pause, really a crucial, uh, crucial tool. So the second tool is being present. And this is, can be harder. I, I usually like to start by working with the ethical guidelines. And again, we use those both to guide our behavior and also as wake-up calls when we're not following one of the guidelines and a chance to look within and say, what's going on? You know, here it is, I'm, uh, I wasn't truthful, I was exaggerating, what's going on? Am I, you know, am I wanting to create an image or what's happening? Use that as a starting point for looking at what's there, what's there in your mind and heart, not with the idea of being judgmental, but more just to see clearly. 
and that can sometimes lead to uh, other options. And I usually, so I usually have that first, but it's also helpful to name a second foundational capacity, which is being present as we speak. Really crucial capacity. A little bit can be a little more difficult, uh, and this is. Um, in one way, a capacity to, when we're talking, not be totally caught in the content, but to stay at home some. It's especially helped if we can have some degree of mindfulness of the body. So if you're at a meeting, you can practice this by just being aware of the hands. Just being aware of the hands, because generally, many of us get caught up in what I sometimes call the... Um, uh, domination by the automatic mind. Anyone relate to that? We're just in a mind space that's just has little awareness of any other part of our experience. Anyone relate to that? Okay. Yeah, it's very common in this culture. Other cultures a little different. And so one of the ways that we interrupt that uh, domination by the what I'm calling the automatic mind is have a little bit of body awareness. And those of us who have developed body awareness, maybe through yoga or qigong or walking meditation or some other tool, it becomes very crucial for being present as we listen and as we talk. Even right now, can you have some degree of presence as you're listening to me? Could be just having a little bit of body awareness. And what this does, of course, is it makes it possible when we're speaking to notice reactions, sometimes to notice our mind rehearsing something. And we can notice, okay, that's not helpful. So it brings in a little bit of mindfulness into the speech situation. Not easy, again, because we usually get so wrapped up in the content. But we can do this. The way to places to practice this first are when you're just listening and you don't have to say anything. So if you're ever at a meeting or somewhere like right now, you're just listening, Watch your mind, watch your, be aware of the body. Practice this when you're just in a listening capacity. This is what we'll do in a moment. We'll be practicing this. And what we're doing is really having some inner awareness and some outer awareness at the same time. This is not usually taught as a form of mindfulness, but I think it's really a key form of mindfulness for our speech practice. Again, not easy, right? Not easy, body awareness so central. That if you can, if you have body awareness, and I try to teach and speak right now, having some body awareness and having some inner presence at the same time that I'm speaking. In fact, uh, I did a lot of training with my friend and colleague, John Travis. He was a teacher for me for four years, and I was starting to come into the teacher role and we worked about four years with focused work to be more aware of the body, very crucial. And when I was doing talks, he would say, do your preparation, and then when you're giving a talk, be aware of your body, and be aware of your heart, and let your thoughts self-organize. So you can try that for public speaking after you've developed a little bit. But it's actually, it's actually possible. It's a quite different, right? So, 
Maybe that's enough to say. Let me, let's do some practice together, okay? And, yeah? Is it a question of clarification? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So I'll, if it's, if it's yeah, because I want to get to the practice period, but okay. yeah, why don't you get, go with it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's a bigger question. Okay. okay. Maybe uh, let's let's come back to that maybe and uh, let's remember that question and maybe I can remember it and address it right when we finish. Okay. But yes, it is uh, it is a crucial practice for our times. Skillful speech and we practice where it's easier. All of our training is finding relatively protected places where we practice, have the capacity to get stronger, then we bring it out into the rest of our lives. Training is always like that. And so, and then um, if any of you have uh, connections with the uh, US Congress, we are prepared to offer skillful speech trainings. <laughs> we will do it even without a fee. Okay, so any of you have connections, you can be in touch with them. Okay, so uh, f form into a, a dyad, a group of two right now. Just turn to someone next to you and sit so you can be speaking with this person. You can introduce yourself. Raise your hand if you need a partner. Yeah, raise your hand if you need a partner. We should have groups only of two not of three, okay? Um, so feel free just to join that group of two there. So we'll have one group of three. Just the one people right there. That's fine. Okay. So we're gonna practice, we're gonna practice in a simple way. We're gonna have uh, basically three minutes for each person to speak. We're gonna have one person speaking and one person listening. And then we'll reverse that. So decide among you who's going to go first. And I'll, I'll tell you what to do. Don't start yet because you don't know what to do. Okay. Raise your hand if you're going first. Okay. Very good. Every group should have one person going first. Okay. It works better that way. Okay. And um, okay. So here's, uh, we're going to be focusing on developing some degree of presence, especially as a listener. Um, and so here, here's the content that each person will talk about for three minutes is this. Uh, how might I develop more, uh, more skillful speech? And you can say as much as you want. So just reflect on that, each of you. That'll be the content when you speak. How I might develop more skillful speech? You have about three minutes. Okay, and then for, so the speaker, your role is to just explore that territory. If you feel like you can try to be a little bit present in your body, fine. If not, fine. That's sort of uh, 
uh, an extra, right? If, if it's enough just to talk about the content. The listener, however, I'm going to ask you to see if you can stay present. You don't have anything to say. You can nod and say, mm, uh -huh. use body language, gestures, and so forth. But you won't be speaking. So I'd like you to explore what is it like to be present as you're listening. Try to have maybe 50% inward and 50% outward. And this is an experiment, right, to see how that is. It'll appear awkward at first. It can appear awkward and you may feel like I'm not fully listening. As you practice this more over the next week, if you choose to do so, it gets to be a little more natural and actually feels, oh, this is actually better because I can actually notice what's going on in my own mind and body. So it, it, will, it can feel a little awkward, that's okay. It's like training, and like any training, sometimes things are a little awkward, okay? Then you get used to it, and you're in the flow, okay? Okay, and so as a listener, try to keep 50% inward, 50% outward. It could just be by being present to your, your body, okay? So everyone clear? Any questions about the instructions? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Pamela, are you available to be a partner? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to repeat the instructions. So you, um, you can meet with, uh, come over to this corner here, get a chair. There's a, looks like there's an available chair right next to you. And you're going to be, you're going to be the listener. And your task, I'm not going to explain it more, your task is to be present as best you can as you're listening. Try to have 50% inward awareness, 50% outward awareness, okay? And, we'll, and the content is talking about uh, uh, how I might develop further with skillful speech. So any other questions about the instructions? Please, Elizabeth. Um, will you time it? I will time it, yeah. Okay. I will time it and we'll switch after three minutes, okay? I'll ring a bell. Okay, so don't start yet. We're gonna work with the power of intention, which is really crucial. So I'm gonna have you set your intention as a speaker or as a listener following the instructions, and I'll ring the bell to start in 10 seconds. So focus on your intention. First speaker, first listener.
About 15 seconds more. So finishing up, thank your partner in whatever way you'd like. And now we'll switch roles, okay? Speaker becomes listener, listener becomes speaker. The content is how I might develop to be more skillful in speech. As a speaker, try to keep some uh, presence as best you can, but if that's too much, that's okay. As a listener, don't have to say anything, try to be present Try to see if you can have 50% inward awareness, 50% listening outwardly, okay? And so let's set the intentions now and I'll ring the bell to start in 10 seconds. Set your intention. About 15 seconds more. So finishing up, uh, thank your partner. In whatever way you'd like. We're going to do part three now. This is going to be 
talking with each other informally, not going to have any structure, about how that was, particularly how it was to be present. Okay? What was it like to be present as a listener, to keep some inner and outer awareness? That's the content. And guess what? Try to be present as you have that discussion about what it was like to try to be present. You get what we're doing. The training is uh, combining content, we might say, in process, right? And here, informal discussion about what it was like, any, anywhere you want to go, that's the content, but still try to stay present. Concretely, that might mean if, you're, if this is fairly new to you, see if you can just be aware of your hands, have 10 or 20% of your awareness, something like that, or just a little bit of awareness of your body. And don't worry about how you do, just do your best, okay? Ready? So again, we'll set the intention. The intention mostly here is let me be a little bit present as I talk about how that was. Okay? Set your intention, I'll ring the bell in 10 seconds. About 15 more seconds. So finish up and thank your partner in whatever way you'd like.
And let's come back to the whole group. So my hope is that many of you may be uh, energized or inspired to do speech practice. I'm going to make a special intention myself. Okay. And uh, again, you can do it in, how many of you would like to uh, focus on speech practice in the next week? You don't have to, but, okay, great. And then again, we'd come back here, compare notes, and then we'd focus on how we bring what we've done to challenging situations, sort of step two, okay? And so you can, you can um, work with this, either use both of the foundational capacities that have been brought out, or just one of them, you know, that, see what's, See what's not too much for you, right? Because uh, it could be fine just to work with the uh, ethical guidelines. One way to work with those would be to remember them every morning, maybe remember them before a difficult interaction, meeting, discussion, um, and so forth. So that's one way to work with them. Uh, you know, put them on your hand, put them on a sheet of paper at a meeting like I was doing, put them on your refrigerator, put them by your telephone, put, you know, and so forth. Um, and you can also work with that sense of being present. Look for the easier situations for developing that. That's more when you don't have to speak as much. You're a listener. How many found it way, way easier to do that when you were listening? Yeah, I think that's, that's normal, right? And so look for the easier situations and know that that second uh, capacity to be present for many of us is not easy. It's hard and it can take some time. And it can feel awkward at first. That's 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 normal. So any let's use the mics now. Any questions, observations, uh, uh, feedback? Uh, yeah. Well, that's right. We have to use uh, we we have to use this one, huh? Just have one. So we'll have to do. We'll, you'll, we'll, does that one not work? Yeah. So this one works. Um, we, you'll just get some little more exercise. Okay. I was thinking um, what you, on this subject of why speech. Yeah. How a few weeks ago we were do, doing the subject of don't shooting the second arrow. Yeah. So that has been so beneficial to me at home. Yeah. In dealing with my beloved husband. Yeah. Is just don't shoot that second arrow. Yeah. And just just saying that or thinking that just cuts me off. And yeah. it's, it's just saves so much miscommunication and, and arguments. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm aware of how much a teacherly, almost judgmental, critical strain just automatically enters my speech. Yeah. Um, and it's the second arrow just before I, you know, it's not even the second arrow, it's like the first arrow. It's yeah. It's right there immediately. Yeah. And I have to be really mindful of that. Yeah. Yeah. Let me give a brief response maybe to those first two so we can bring the mic up. Right. For those. Um, <clears throat> who are new to the teaching called the teaching of the two arrows. It's a very pivotal teaching 
about uh, our tendency when there's something unpleasant present to push it away. And the teaching originally was given in terms of something physically unpleasant that we will tend to react. And again, we have something physically unpleasant, but I generalize it to mean something, anything difficult or unpleasant, an interaction, an experience, a job evaluation, the news, whatever, that we will tend because of the presence of the unpleasant to somewhat automatically and compulsively push it away. We can do that by being judgmental and blaming, or we can do that by uh, you know, walking out of a conversation. And some the key for shooting the second arrow is that it's uh, reactive and somewhat unconscious, automatic, compulsive, right? And so, and when something difficult happens to us, we want to be on the lookout. You know, we have a difficult experience, we will tend to shoot the second arrow unless we're watching. Something negative happens, I make a negative story about it. A neg- I have a negative future scenario, right? This is very common. And so uh, one of the forms that that shooting the second arrow takes, uh, Tom was bringing out in terms of uh, being judgmental. And for a lot of us, that's a very, very common habit in our observation. And it's something that we've looked into here, again, I think last or two years ago, 2016, partly to help me writing a book on transforming the judgmental mind, I gave 11 talks, which are on the website Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D, on transforming the judgmental mind. More than you'd ever like to know about the judgmental <laughs> mind, right? And, uh, and so also to say that this talk, for people not familiar, will go on that website as well. I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna put it on later today. So the talk and the exercises will be available if you wanna review for the purposes of the next week. And it's a f- free website, you know, supported by donations, but one can access it uh, freely. And so, yeah, it's mostly, so the working with the judgmental mind is long-term. So you have to really track that and just keep noticing. And one good way to proceed would be when you notice the judgmental mind and you think it's not going to be helpful just to go there. Then you could follow that second guideline from the uh, teachings of the Buddha. You know, it's, it's not going to be helpful right now. I'm in a judgmental place. I'm a little bit triggered, activated, not so helpful. You know, with people close enough to you, you can sometimes say, You know, I'm feeling a little bit judgmental, so can you hear what's truthful about what I'm saying and get rid of the baggage? (laughs) Some people close to you could do that. It takes some advanced capacities. But, uh, because the point is that typically our being judgmental does capture something that's actually significant. You know, if we are very judgmental about something that's unjust, we're seeing something clearly but we're reactive, right? And the reactivity is not going to be helpful. The seeing clearly potentially is helpful. So we, the long-term work with judgmental mind separates out the reactivity from the stuff, <laughs> right? So, okay, so maybe time for one or two more questions. I'm going to go just a few minutes over just because this is, I know, rich. So. Just in thinking back, 
as you brought up the subject today of what I would, you know, what part of my life I would think about with this, I had to add in using my horn in, while I'm driving. Yeah. As part of speech. That's right. And I did a boo-boo this morning. I honked a little too much. I meant to just remind, or, you know, like, oh, the light turned green. But it was a little stronger than that, and he just, you know, was not happy and drove even slower after that. And everything. Yeah. I'll make a short comment on that. <laughs> yeah. 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 So this is mindfulness of honking. <laughs> it was one of our contemporary contributions to spiritual practice. <laughs> and uh, what was I going to say? Um, oh yeah, uh, one of my students coined a very nice phrase. She found in herself what she calls an IMA. IMA stands for the impatient moral authority. <laughs> Can manifest in honking or many other ways. So notice if you have the equivalent of a, of a moral authority within. And, and your question again was, let's get to that. Maybe I'll, I'll end with that question in terms of time. So uh, let me see if I can remember it and correct me. So it was really saying that, um, that in a lot of kinds of speech, people uh, get triggered and it can be there because of fear, anxiety, being judgmental, what we've looked at in past weeks as forms of reactivity. And that that can be very strong and that where we find unskillful speech, we're typically gonna find reactivity, uh, which is, a, that's a great connection, right? So this goes, you know, our speech practice goes hand in hand with our mindfulness practice and particularly the focus that we had in the last few weeks that I was here, which was the theme was transforming reactivity in daily life. Reactivity meaning the reactive pushing away, unconsciously, compulsively, or grabbing hold. And then you were, I think you were generalizing to say that uh, that is very widespread and that people working skillfully with speech or use the phrase a drop in the bucket or drips and drops that the widespread unskillful speech is so uh, rampant, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sense of urgency. And this is this to it seems to me to have this be wide and this is something I teach, so this is kind of a crisis internally in me. Yeah. But it seems like to have this cultivated on a wide scale will take a very long time. And the opposite of this is spreading. It feels like Yeah, so so to teach wise speech on a on a broad scale as is needed, one could say. Uh, and the, the opposite, the reactivity, the triggering, is um, spreading quickly. Um, I think there's a, there are a lot of positive things spreading as well. So I think I would, I would probably, my own view, but in terms of teaching wise speech, it's not, it's not on the agenda for the election on either side. <laughs> as far as I know, but... But prob maybe it is. Maybe some of you have had training for canvassing or lobbying or going door to door, and you probably have some guidance which resembles skillful speech. Anyone had that? I imagine that it might be there, but maybe not as developed. But, but yeah, yeah, this is um, really fundamental. 
And what can we do other than really uh, get it going as much as we can, share it with others, uh, you know, uh, have it in the schools and so forth, have it be part of training uh, on more and more levels, you know, and I'm, I'm hopeful that it can be. You know, my, my colleague Oren Sofer is coming out with a book uh, on skillful speech in December. Uh, he's been very active with mindful schools. And they have, and I, so I, I don't know all the details, but I imagine mindful speech, skillful speech, has been introduced where they've done, brought in mindfulness, which has gone to 15 or 20,000 kids in the Bay Area. And so, and I hope that I, I also, I go to Louisville, Kentucky every year. There, uh, the mayor uh, has asked that mindfulness be brought into the entire public school system. I don't know how much they're uh, working with skillful speech, but I'm going to go there in um, about three weeks to Louisville and be teaching there. And I have a uh, uh, person I stay with uh, knows the mayor and has an ear for the mayor, and it may have influenced the decision, I don't know. So, uh, but I think you're, you're right that we need to, that th these capacities, just to be, uh, you know, just to bring these qualities uh, of being truthful, helpful, coming from the heart, and, you know, just asking, may my speech be part, maybe connected with my deeper values, is precious and crucial and deeply, deeply needed. So let's not go to scenarios or worrying, but let's just bring it out in the world. <laughs> okay. It's a, not a bad way to end. Okay. So thank you for your question. Uh, you had something urgent, Pamela? Or? Uh, the staff asked that the chairs remain. Do not stack the chairs. Okay. So, yeah. so we'll be, there'll be a... Uh, a gathering here later, actually, that I am uh, part of uh, this evening, uh, which will be a special activity for the volunteers, uh, maybe something earlier, but at least that. And so, yeah, don't sack your chairs. Let's finish with uh, setting first your intention for the next week, particularly if you want to continue with the speech practices. What's going to help you to bring that, make this real for the next week? And then we close with the traditional dedication of merit. We can see from this practice how we both practice for ourselves and we practice for others. And may the fruits of our time together be of benefit for ourselves, for all the beings in our lives, and then beyond those circles, may this be of benefit to all beings, knowing that all beings includes us. Thank you and to be continued. <laughs>